Does anyone have an idea for an intro? Calvin, you sound like you want to sing a parody of that song. <laughs> the... There is a man. How did you know that was my... I do have an idea for an intro, if you don't mind. Ah, diminishing returns. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast where movie fans meet to discuss movies. Co-hosted by... <laughs> so? You tell me how you can say that sentence and have it make sense. There's too much directing going on around here. <laughs> Well, hi, I'm Sol. Uh, I I would be very impressed if even one of our listeners understands what we're doing here. So do do write in, let us know. What? <laughs> Everyone knows the Drunk Orson Wells commercial, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> one, one would hope. 102, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So, Paul Masson. I'm Calvin, by the way. I'm one of the (laughs) co-hosts here. And uh, here, as always, are Alan. Uh, Doesn't she do anything? (laughs) Just standing there. Oh, and, <laughs> and Sol. Oh. <laughs> Zombie Orson Welles. <laughs> See what, like Orson Welles is this weird thing where every once in a while I I can just knock out like the most incredible Orson Welles impression in the world, but it's really inconsistent. I only seem to be able to access it maybe you know, one one in a hundred tries. So, <laughs> buckle up, guys. Uh, I'm going to be trying to get there tonight. Brilliant. <laughs> this is the first time we've covered Orson Welles on this podcast, isn't it? Yes. I think it, I think it is. Did we, is right? did we do the Transformers yeah. film? Oh, actually. We did, we did touch on it. Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't count. But then what does Orson Welles really count towards? Like, for all of his... Uh, Reputation. I don't know if I've like this. The third man, Transformers. Uh, I think that might be it. Casino Royale. It's kind of all I know him from. But you know, I I can name like you know a good dozen or more James Stewart films like off the top of my head. Or and you know, Orson Welles is revered much more than him. I feel not as an actor. Well, yeah, no, that's true. Actually, he was more of a sort of just like personality curio for talk shows and stuff. Uh, it was sort of a burn bright burn brief kind of guy wasn't he you know it was very quickly went out of yeah out of uh fashion vogue do i just have a misapprehension of him then because to me he is this sort of uh very consistent genius of cinema kind of has this this kind of reputation but maybe people don't remember him all that much consistent is certainly not a word i would use yeah <laughs> i think he's regarded as one of the greats Hmm. He's generally regarded as the greatest example of someone who writes, directs, and acts in their films. All hmm. three of those roles being filled at once. 
Although I, you know, I also must say I, I think he's probably probably best known for Citizen Kane. But after that, I'd say he's probably best known for that War of the Worlds broadcast on the radio. You know, I, mm. he was a radio guy. Not even that, really. He was a theatre guy. The radio thing was an offshoot of that. With his yeah, same true, troop. very true. And Citizen Kane was, of course, um, kind of the fruit of that theatre theatrical career, wasn't it? Yeah. So they, he, him, and. Um... At least one other person and sort of general acting troupe formed an independent theatre company called Mercury Theatre and had great success. Did War of the Worlds on the radio, which became a big thing. Hollywood came a knocking. It seems like they were courting him for quite a while and he was like, nah, I'm theatre guy. I don't want to do crappy Hollywood. Until RKO gave him the contract that they did, which was just gave him entire complete control over everything. Uh, and so he, it was a, an offer he couldn't refuse. And he had never made films. He didn't know anything about films. And so, won't say groundbreaking, but the unusual elements of Citizen Kane come from a place of he didn't know the rules. So he just did whatever he wanted. And he had a cinematographer who was ready to to do it, to put it into practice. Well, this is it, because it can't be uh, understated that, like how unusual this was, particularly at 1940, like with the studio system in full force and, you know, films were kind of made on a bit of a conveyor belt at that time and to just bring in someone to write, direct, mm. produce, act in whatever it is the hell they wanted. That's really something. And I, it was RKO, wasn't it, that uh, yeah. brought him in? And they were known, I suppose, for being a bit more adventurous well, I, I got the impression that it, it was just a kind of a culmination of things. Like, obviously, like I say, he'd been kind of courted by a few studios and, you know, he didn't fancy what they were offering. So RKO was the one who came in with the great deal. But the reason they did was because they were cash rich at the time and they wanted to kind of pump up their, look, aren't we doing worthy films? We don't just churn out crap. We're doing really good, classy, arty films with Orson Welles. So it was just kind of what they were trying to achieve right there at that time. So, you know, it was kind of everything coming together just nicely. But yeah, completely unprecedented control over the actual project. Greg Toland, the cinematographer, was a very well-established cinematographer at the time already. He wanted to work with Wells because he knew it it was going to be like uh, no no rules. <laughs> like he, he was going to give him a chance to experiment and play around and, and just try and do all this stuff that most people would go, no, no, that's not the way we do it. So I think it's just like getting getting those collaborators who are up for the for the, the adventure as well. Uh, is, yes, uh, yeah. That helps. I've watched it twice. Once, I think, for university. Did we get it screened at university, guys? I was going or? to ask if you remembered this, Saul, but we saw it at our uh, local cinema, the Hyde Park Picture oh, House, when yay! we were students in Leeds. Yes, because neither of us had seen it before. I can't remember if Alan was with us or indeed anyone else, but I remember we went to see it. Um, so we, you know, experienced it for the first time in the proper sort of theatrical presentation, which I remember appreciating nice. a lot at the time. Oh, no, nice. I can say I've seen it in the cinema. Great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was only my second time, I think, ever watching it yesterday in preparation for this. And um, both times I've watched it, it feels like if I were to stumble back in time to the 40s and was able to then somehow get the funding to make a feature <laughs> film... Or maybe not me, just anyone. <laughs> I was going to say, you, that seems a bit of a narcissistic thing to say. 
I don't, I don't, I, 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 what I mean is, it feels like someone familiar with modern film language exactly. has made this film. Mm. It feels, it's a very long-winded way of saying this film feels light years ahead of the time in which it was made. It, it, it I, I think when you watch films older than, older than, let's say, the 80s, generally I think you have to engage or maybe older than the 70s, let's say. I think generally you have to engage a different part of your brain that kind of recontextualizes what you're watching, and that that's not to say you can't enjoy it, but it's a bit more work than to just sit down and take it in as pure entertainment. It, it kind of has to pass through a filter. And every now and then I'll find an old film that just bypasses that, and I just watch it as if it were a brand new release. The oldest back I can possibly find a film that exists that I just watch and it feels like I'm watching something modern is Citizen Kane. Mm. Can you nail down more specifically what what you mean by that? Well it's weird because it is very of its time in a lot of ways but then in other ways I I think it's the the film language there's a lot of cinematography that is of the time incredibly experimental but Mm -hmm. I mean to be honest nowadays it feels like people trying to do modern film techniques with old equipment that couldn't quite handle it. But beyond that, the language, it it opens with a a newsreel report about this character, which is arguably a a, a massive exposition dump. Arguably, there's no arguing about it. (laughs) It's a massive Arguably a a very lazy one. But it's it's arguably an incredibly postmodern meta way to open your film. People were saying that District 9 was incredibly postmodern and meta for opening with a a similarly like you know 10 minute documentary sequence up front before transitioning into you gotta bear in mind at the time people would have gone to the cinema watched a couple of newsreels before the main feature exactly so in that in those terms it fits in perfectly and i think it would feel much less of an exposition dump in the in that context well can i just can i just chip in on this because i it, it is an important technique for the storytelling uh, arguably i think um i listened yes, to there's yes. a fantastic commentary on the blu-ray by roger ebert that i listened to um and he kind of talks about how the kind of non-linear narrative that they're gonna have for the structure of this film they are kind of gonna hop all the way around this guy's life yeah. they needed this up front to kind of orient the audience so yeah, that people would know that you can jump around yeah. It's mm. another another great point, though, the fact that it is a very non-linear story for mm. the most part, and that's I can't think of a film other than this from before the fifties that is mm. significant. Other than perhaps, well, no, even Sunset Boulevard, which is the fifties, is just like, oh, I'm dead. See, want to mm. know how I got here? See, there were wraparounds, but yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I I can't really think of something that jumps around in this way, and it's. Mm. I don't know, it just feels very modern. Like I say, it feels like someone familiar with modern film and modern TV who's gone back in time and they're trying to make something within the film language they know, but with the limitations of the cameras and filming equipment of the time. Well, that's that's interesting because I, I from what I understand, Orson Welles you know, embarked upon this study of film to try and get up to speed with what he was doing. And he watched a lot of old films, watched a really lot of old silent films and stuff like that. And I think that it actually harks back to a lot of older stuff. There's a real montage kind of feel to it, a lot of stuff, Mm. um, and a lot of the camera techniques and stuff. 
And I, I, I can kind of give you a more specific kind of route of how I think this happened. As in, you know, when sound came in, in 1928, 29, uh, one of the major problems was in order to record sound, you had to have everything else silent, including the cameras, which were noisy. And so that instead of having the cameras around uh, where they could move them, they put them in a big soundproof box and like pointed it through a window. So all of a sudden, in terms of cinematic language, the cameras stopped moving in, in films, like mm. literally over a year uh, into the 30s. And I think throughout the 30s, that film language that evolved from that became, look, you point the camera at the, at the, two, at the group, and then you're going for close-ups, you're going for mediums. You know, you, it was like this very static camera, simple language, which we still have. And I think what Citizen Kane is doing, what Orson Welles is doing, is watching those older films where you've got much more camera movement and going, well, that's great, let's do that. Let's experiment with where we put in the camera. Let's do this, let's do that. And then Greg Toland has gone, okay, I'll figure out a way to make that work. Mm. But what I will say is, you know, when, when I go back and watch old silent films, for the most part, they feel very slow. And another thing that I think makes this film feel so modern is the the speed in which it is like cut together you know it, it, it's not it's got these exciting extravagant shots and you're right there, there's plenty of shots like that in silent cinema the likes of the passion of joan of arc and the other few classics i've seen have had similarly elaborate shots in there but it's very much like oh we're going to do an elaborate shot and here's another shot look at this shot whereas in this it's like smash cut 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 and and maybe that's the language of news reels that i'm not familiar with but you know it it feels very quick and fast-paced it feels made to a modern sensibility i, I mean i think that they i think they are taking a lot of that pace from the uh like uh, his girl friday and is it howard hawks like who did those kinds of very yeah, rat-a-tat-tat yeah. like the dialogue and they're talking over each other and you know it's barely mm. processing a line before they're saying the next one which uh but even even the likes of His Girl Friday is like, right, we're going to sit on this dialogue scene for... Mm. I don't know, I think the pacing is still lightning fast compared to those films. Oh, I agree, um, yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's just because it's done better? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, I'll, I, tell I don't you know. What, I'll tell you what else Austin Wells did for the filming of this, um, which was really innovative um, at the time. Uh, so he got his actors... And then he took time to have them practice the lines. He called it rehearsing. Apparently it's something he took from theatre. But it was something that was apparently completely absent in the film world. Um, but just by really? rehearsing the actors. it was. I mean, I'm not saying it never happened, but that just wasn't the standard. You, you hand your script, they turn up, they do the lines, you know, one line at a time. And huh. they forget it, and the script supervisor tells it. I mean, that's how it's done now. You know, isn't it? Was it I don't know if this is a rumour, but... In the Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp has just an earpiece no. in his ear and someone feeding him the lines, and he just says them, which is why he, why he sounds so confused all the time. Pirates of the Caribbean was uh, half written when they started filming; the script wasn't finished, so that's probably well, exactly. True. Uh, he's got a lot on his mind, though. You know, you can't expect him to learn lines. Yeah. Uh, so, lost that li- hey, if he's lost that libel case, does that mean we can say what we want about Johnny Depp? Too? He is officially a wife beater. <laughs> but does that mean we can say Johnny Depp stamps on mice? No, no you'd have to, you'd have to just because that. one thing isn't a libel doesn't mean anything said about him isn't libel. <laughs> he does. Stamp well, I, I think he. I think he does. Yeah, it's not libelous if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> 
so yeah, um, so that's another another element of this is that his actors are allowed to act and their experienced theatre actors have all worked together lots of times. Um, but having said that, there's not a lot of interaction between characters, is there, really? Like, this was still, like, what, 1940, 41? Like, there was a lot 41, of... 41, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of hamminess going around still, which is, oh, you know, yeah. a sort of hangover yeah. from the silent era. And I thought there was a lot of realism uh, to a lot of the performances in here. Not all of them. Yeah, and, and they are from a theatrical background, so if anything, you'd expect them to be a bit more dramatic and theatrical. Yeah. Uh, but it's all very, mm. uh, very closely held in. Mm. You mentioned there, Calvin, um, his kind of right-hand man... Bernstein. Now, last time I watched this, I'm sure he was called Bernstein, right? How do you explain that, eh? (laughs) You can't, can you? Well, either I'm wrong, or the entire fabric of the universe is made up. Which do you think is more likely? (laughs) Just on the camera technique as well, uh, I think one of the reasons, because Sol, I react exactly the same way you did to a lot of the language, the shots, there's some sequences in this that, if you told me it was like a Coen Brothers film from the 90s, like, pretending to be a 1940s <laughs> film, I believe you. Mm. Um, yeah. So much is to be said about the folk, the use of focus, and how deep the focus is throughout yes. so much of the film, uh, which was quite unusual for the time, where, you know, the whatever's in the foreground would be in focus, and then you'd have a sort of a, mm. a out-of-focus blurry background. Whereas here, so much, and there's, like, so many great shots of, like, uh, in the flashback to when Kane's a boy, and you can see him playing outside mm. the back window mm. of the house while his mum and the lawyer are in the foreground signing papers and stuff, and you can see it all very clearly. It's really excellent. But uh, not, use not of that. just that; it's such a long shot. It's all one shot. The camera, mm. p- the camera pans back, uh, and then you know the table suddenly appears out of nowhere. They sit down, and then they get up and they move forward again. It mm. uh, not just to maintain a depth of feel like that, but whilst the camera's moving, whilst your actors are, are moving. And it's it is technically fantastic, but w- but what does it add on a on a filmic level or on a, a kind of an audience? Because as an audience, you know we're all film students. We've studied this film. We see that sort of thing, and I think you can appreciate it on that level. But just as a general audience, you see that you don't experience it on that conscious level. But it adds something. It 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 it, mm. it creates a look. It creates a, a style that perhaps you're not used to. Obviously, it's achieving something. I, yeah. I think the the other thing you get from that is there's so much use of things in the heavy foreground. So just the side of someone's face, just like mm. pressed up against the camera, pretty much, mm. uh, and and it creates f- framing within the frame. It creates a claustrophobic yeah. feel yeah. when you want it, but then it's got this huge depth. It it, it creates the pressure like around Kane often. You know, it it, it it's. It is a film language all in itself, you know? It's telling the story mm. or adding to the story, mm. even in ways that you're only kind of picking up subconsciously. Mm. You know what else, thinking about it? I, I would love to see a breakdown of the number of cuts in this film compared to the number of cuts in an average film from this era, because I think that's another part of it. I think it's the number of shots. Where you think back to the iconic opening sequence of, of uh, Kane dying, um, and, you know, gr- grabbing the, the snow globe and saying Rosebud and it falling to the floor. I feel like most films of this era would do that with long shot or a wide shot and then a close-up of the thing on the floor. But it's not. It's it's done with all these modern, you know, <laughs> quick cuts to different close-ups and, you know, a shot of his lips and a shot of his hand. And 
I think that is a very modern way of doing things, and and it, it it's just see that's interesting because I see that and I think that's Soviet montage theory. That's nineteen twenties <laughs> Soviet <laughs> films, basically. <laughs> but even from what I've seen of those films, they didn't tend to cut that often, did they? Like if they had a fancy shot, it was usually something they'd linger on for for a while and be like, you know. And, and I must admit, silent films are you know not something I'm massively familiar with. I've probably seen 20 or 30 silent films in my life. That's not that many, but I don't know. It, it, it just, it jumps out at me. Um, We, we haven't actually mentioned, um, I don't even know if we've mentioned that we're doing Citizen Kane this week, but uh, that should be apparent for anyone who's listening. Um, A bit late for that. We haven't mentioned why we're doing it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yes. that's probably worth going into, isn't it? Go um, on then, Sol, you, you explain Basically, Alan and I covered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest recently, and we quite enjoyed doing a uh, an old classic. And we thought we should do more of this because we, you know, do a film podcast where we're supposed to be <laughs> poncy film people. Yeah. So we threw up on our Patreon, patreon.com slash dimreturns, uh, the option to vote for the next film we were going to do off the AFI top 10? I think it was the 10 highest rated films by the AFI that we hadn't already covered, which I think was basically the top 11 films minus The Godfather. Does that sound right? <laughs> Something like that, I guess. And they voted for Citizen Kane. Thank you, patrons. Uh, but also, David Finch has got a new film out called Mank, which should be out this week on Netflix, about the writer of Citizen Kane. Harry Mankovic. Co-writer. Uh, and so we we kind Herman of figured, Mankovic, well, right. let's uh, let's pop it out this week to tie into that and kill two birds with one stone. So that's why we're doing Citizen Kane this week. There you go. Yes, uh, happily the patrons voted uh, for for what we wanted. Um, <laughs> so dem- democracy works again. Uh, yeah. So uh, yes, we are we are recording on the uh, the eve of the U.S. general election. So. If there is an an atmosphere of um, political angst <laughs> in the air that you're picking up on, that's why we haven't even gotten there yet. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, interesting. I, I don't think I've watched this film for ten years. Probably when we were at uni is the last time I watched it. And watching it again now, I feel like I'm seeing it with different eyes. You know, I feel like that character, perhaps the way I'm seeing him, is no longer removed from reality like obviously he's based on real people william randolph hearst kind of obviously but then there's others as well but he is just a figure of that time of the 20s and the 30s but obviously it relates a lot to now you know rich people just going oh i want to be into politics so i'm going to buy the newspapers and, and spread whatever news i want to spread obviously that's been happening for years but i feel like i'm just more aware of it now maybe <laughs> because of uh, current situations perhaps you know, Donald Trump is a more obvious uh, symbol of that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't think they have to be directly politicians themselves for it to be relevant. I I would argue that it's more relevant to the likes of um, Rupert Murdoch. Mm. People like that. Media barons. Have, have huge political influence, despite not actually directly being in politics themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the difference, isn't it, between the 30s and now, I guess, is that it used to be, yeah, you go you go into politics, whereas now you just buy the politicians instead. 
how much do we want to get into the plot? It's essentially the life story of Charles Foster Kane. Uh, we sort of see him at the beginning that he's died, an old man, kind of lonely in this massive palace that he's created. He's rich, but is he rich uh, in life? No, he has nothing. <laughs> well, his dying word is rosebud, and he drops mm. a uh, sort of like a snow globe on the floor, and this news gets back to a bunch of journalists who are preparing a newsreel about his life, and the yeah. head guy's like, ah, we need an angle for this for this thing, and he sends out one of his guys to find out what rosebud means, like what, nobody knows what that particular word, what the significance of it is, so he goes around and he's interviewing exactly. all it's, these it's people. It's a mystery. Yeah. Well, well it, mm, you, um, It's a yeah. sleuthing detective story in a way it, i mean it, it's obviously a a, a a facility for them to go through the different areas of this man's life and i think it's quite effective that we do see that newsreel which is about five or ten minutes long at the very start of the film and then we hear long. things here and there like oh there was <laughs> there was scandal in his political career or whatever and then obviously later on in the film we actually see sort of the behind the scenes version of that so to speak through interviews that came you know mm. people he knew throughout his life um, I think it's a really effective way of telling the story, just as a device. I think it's quite yeah. fantastic, and you quickly forget about the rosebud aspect of it. It becomes very significant yeah, yeah. at the very end. Well, that's it. I think the the rosebud thing is a MacGuffin, and and it's it it it's more of a wraparound. Really, they keep yeah, they keep sort of dropping it in. It's like giving him motivation, but like you could just have him. Oh, he's writing an obituary, so he's going to go and interview people. Like that's not like that's not an unreasonable thing to do. Anyway, the rosebud thing seems a bit of a weird. I think it does have significance. Uh, yeah, there's a twist at the end, and the the reveal of the twist is um, the point of the, the film, isn't it? You know, it, it would just well, be a yeah, yeah. I'm saying in terms of the structure, you don't necessarily need it, but then it, mm. it like you say, it kind of comes in at the end and gives you that uh, ending. I, I I think it's probably good they don't hang too much weight on it throughout the story because because if you were really going like oh what's Robert we're going to find out what Rosebud is like I was going to find out what Rosebud is it would be like a total disappointment but mm. I think if it wasn't up front there would be no power behind it oh no 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 my point is that if you set it up and play it as this mystery as in we're going to find an answer it it would be disappointing but I don't think it does like Calvin said that kind of all gets forgotten about it's just sort of like you're finding yeah, out about yeah. this guy's life story and then it comes back in at the end, just to give you a kind of a, a little bit of poignancy. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's a it's a difficult film because you know your central character is an asshole. He's not a likable person, and well, he's he's not supposed to be. It's not like oh, you know, he does this, but we we like him anyway. I, then I don't think the filmmakers are attempting to make him likable. I think he's supposed no, to. No, I, I, I he's famously a, a very unlikable character in a film, an an antihero, if not a a villain. I think he's not nearly as cut and dry awful evil as he might be. He starts out quite um, altruistic. I, that's what I mean. You you see his in his youth, he's a charming, well-intentioned good guy, you know? And, mm. and he, he sort of corrupts down into a kind of miserly... Hermit? No, what, what's that phrase about evil being compromise? Power corrupts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It ba basically, it's you know he just kind of becomes a, a bad person because he keeps compromising and pursuing his own interests and so on. And so he's not a good man by the but end. But even that, I don't but... think it's as straightforward as that. Even I think because w when we see him as a young man and he is like kind of apparently full of ideals and optimism and all this, I still don't like him. He he 
he's still a a rich twat who is <laughs> like he's decided he's going to rebel and stick it to the to like his parental figures who are like the money men you know it's like oh i'm not going to do what you want me to do i'm going to rebel yeah and then he he got he has all this stuff about how he's going to run the newspaper and he's going to he's going to give the people the stories they want or or or, or like tell the truth but then he's also yeah. very happy to just make up whatever he wants that, that he thinks it'll sell and manipulate the the press even at that very early stage I don't know if he does change that much, really. <laughs> I think. Um, I I think he's quite a well-drawn mixed bag. If I'm completely honest, I, I mm. think he's very believable character instead of yeah. just a cackling villain. Oh no, he's very believable. But I think real people don't change that much necessarily. But I I I, I think he is quite easy to warm to in his youth, and maybe that's just because Orson Welles is a, a you know pre-alcoholic uh, <laughs> young Orson Welles is a very charming um, young man with a lot of charisma, maybe that blindsides you part of the way, but I, I, I think the fact that he's he is ultimately trying to do the right thing, I think, early on. Yeah, I, I agree. It just progressively, like I say, he compromises. It, it becomes more and more corrupted, mm. his value system. And because he's young, he's coming into this newspaper office where it's all very fuddy-duddy old men kind of stuff, and he comes in and, yeah, he's a bit rebellious, and he might be a bit arrogant with that as well, but it's hard not to enjoy aspects of that uh shaking up the system i think i i find it a very interesting film citizen kane because generally speaking it's one that you know friends of mine who like films certainly you know like them and talk about them more than your average joe on the street they'll get round to citizen kane and in my experience they usually come away saying eh it's this old film i don't really get it you know i can take it for what it was at its time but it doesn't do it for me but on a personal level, I think it's a, a furiously entertaining film. I, I think it... I can just sit and watch it like I could uh, any old um, modern equivalent. Mm. I, I just didn't like what I was seeing. It was like, oh, here, look, here's a life. And it's like a life I don't enjoy. And so it's difficult to really get behind it with any kind of passion. Even if that is the intention of the filmmakers, to show you someone you don't like. Do you not even connect with sort of the more uh, romantic aspects of the character? We're very much focused on his political ambitions, all this kind of stuff. Um, he does marry uh, a couple of times. Once to a successful politician's daughter, which is obviously the establishment, the very public-facing marriage. Uh, but then he ends up sort of by chance bumping into this sort of singer, in quotations, uh and he likes to go around to her apartment and listen to her sing. And it's handled in a way that makes you feel... I think we're supposed to feel like, oh, this poor guy, he just wanted to go and listen to this lady sing. But he's obviously having an affair with her, right? Like, that's yeah, yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Okay. You lose that when he marries her. I think that's kind of pretty clear. Well, well, yes, when we get there. But I, I, What I did like and what I related to more was when he gets caught, uh, you know, he's on the eve of political uh, election and um, the, his rival, you know, finds this dirt on him and confronts him with it. And, and he has the option of like, okay, I drop out of the race and sweep all this under the rug and I get back on with my life. But he doesn't. He stand. He goes to this guy and he's like, "No, fuck you. I don't care what you do. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go down in flames on my own terms." Hmm. And I like that. And that I feel like you know, I related to that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> someone tried to blackmail me, I'd be like, "All right, then let's see what you got." <laughs> it's um, and then he follows through. You know, he marries this girl. But then it feels like 
he marries the girl because it's like, oh, I better make good on this whole situation. Mm-hmm. And then he, again, there's and it's it's mentioned several times by other characters about him that he has no capacity to love. Um, he just wants to be loved, uh, and that's the interesting thing about this story is I think you could watch this ten times and then pick it apart as a real psychological landscape of this particular person mm. why did he do this what was about his childhood that made him do this and etc etc and obviously our ending sort of really gives us a big pointer to that but i think that's an interesting thing i think the problem with that is you're trying to present that in a two-hour film and that's a very difficult thing to do mm. i think it works on that level but i think this film would benefit from like talking about it afterwards i know we're doing that <laughs> <laughs> I love all the stuff with the story where it goes with him trying to... He builds an opera house for this lady that he marries because he's... Well, is he convinced that she's a good singer or is he just uh, trying to make her a higher profile figure to make him look good or like what's really yeah, at play yeah. there? That's it. He he has not given up his marriage and political career for some chorus line tramp. He's doing <laughs> it for the greatest opera singer who's ever lived. Mm. That's that's who you do it for. But she's actually really bad, and you hear. I love that scene where she comes out for the on the applause, and he's he stands up and he's the one clapping where <laughs> hardly anyone else is. And that's really nice. Is she is she bad? I I don't know if I could tell a bad opera well, singer from a this, good one. This is it. Like I, <laughs> she's, I, she's not comically bad, which I think is to benefit the film. You know. Well, I, I kind of liked that. that. Yeah, if she wasn't a professional, she'd be very good. But. Yeah, she's just not quite at that professional standard. But I'm glad that I had the characters there to tell me that, because otherwise, <laughs> yeah. otherwise, it's like I've heard singing in other like films of this era, and it's like, is it any worse or better than that? I don't think so. <laughs> well, that's it. I think there was a lot of terrible music going on in the forties, to be honest. But but yeah, you know that scene with the Italian music teacher. I mean, she sounds very shrill, put it that way. But then I suppose That's a lot awkward. of these terrible, you know, Laurel and Hardy musicals and so on had some awful singers in them. So. <laughs> mm. Mm. I, uh, the, the only scene that I didn't much care for, and it is a, it's a very pivotal, important scene, but it's uh, after he's had a big row with his wife and then he kind of tears up the room and it is like the big sort of char- climax character story <laughs> moment and it ends with him like picking up the snow globe but it is a scene that has been done in like soaps like it's kind of your go-to like characters breaking down what do they do they turn everything over in the room and <laughs> it, it's yeah seeing him kind of waddle around in the makeup just yeah, but pulling books off shelves. I didn't. So you basically, think it... you're saying he's ripping off Tim- Tommy Wiseau. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's it. Yeah, that that was the only scene where I was like, and I I don't feel like that's aged very well. Whereas I feel like yeah. most of the stuff in the film has. And uh, and actually, just speaking about makeup, I thought the makeup effects in this film were fantastic uh, throughout the like, uh, like particularly on Orson yeah. Welles himself, like really Some lovely old incredible. age stuff in general. Isn't mm. it? Yeah, but normally Orson Welles himself, wonderful. Mm. It's a bit ropey when you see some of the older other people, but mm. for when it was made, it's very impressive and it's very understated, to be honest. For the most part, I, mm. I think um, you know it, they they could have gone a lot bigger and and. Mm. more blatant with it but it's um 
just some bags under the eyes and mm. you're away. It's yeah. And some of the special effects are really terrific, like seamless. Some of them. There's some uh, some newsreel footage that the actors were placed into with special effects. I think it was in Roger Ebert's thing where he pointed out that there are more special effects shots, like post production effects, in Citizen Kane than there are in the original seventy seven Star Wars, like the original version of it. And you just don't realise it because it's all just so well done and it's not hammed up or done or anything. And it's, uh, yeah, really quite remarkable. Ceilings as well. That was another note that I had. Like, And I, I, I think that's a, that might be a reason why this feels so modern is because in films of this era, you don't, you never see the ceilings because the sets obviously just go like, you know, 15 feet in the air or whatever. So they have the lights above. Here, they had a ceiling, but it was actually like a kind of a paper. So you could put the lights above it and the lights, you know, you could still light the set from above as well as everywhere else because they'd let the light through. Um, mm. But that's why you have a lot of like up angles and stuff. Wow. Such a paper baron, he even <laughs> makes his ceilings out of paper. <laughs> I'm, well, that's why I'm quite impressed with it, because it is this very sort of grand film. But actually, like, the budget stuff that um, I was reading about afterwards and, like, how small the sets actually were and how they had to use special effects and, you know, they didn't really have that many people or studio stuff at their disposal, but they managed to yeah, make it seem like a much grander thing. And they used a lot of newsreel footage as well, because RKO did their own newsreels. So a lot of the stuff that you see of Xanadu, which is Kane's palace complex whatever it is and it's like this grotesque i don't really know what it is but they deliberately took newsreel footage from different parts of the world and sort of showed it all as this building just to kind of make a point of how grotesque it is it's just taken influence from all these different places and that that bit where kane climbs up the side of the empire state building and a lot of airplanes <laughs> shoot down that, that was actually footage of king kong wasn't it mm. <laughs> And I, th- I think the ending's quite powerful still. The rosebud, re- the reveal that it is the yeah. childhood you know, sled that he played with. Well, well, this is the big, the big twist for anyone who hasn't seen the film. It's, it's kind of set up as his last words were rosebud. You're led to think, oh, okay, is that, is that a, a, an old lover? A woman? Is it? another family member or, or you know a child he gave away like you know you, you're made to think it's pet. gonna be yeah is it something <laughs> significant like that and then the 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 reveal at the end is it was his his boyhood sled and of course we've established earlier in an earlier scene that that's the sled he was playing on when he was basically taken away from his parents and yes, embarked yes. on this very very different life Mm. And so it is this totem of his previous life as an innocence. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, I, I think in extremely broad terms, the idea is, you know, he's got all the money in the world, but can't buy happiness. I mean, that's kind of what they're getting at, isn't it? It's uh, pretty much, yeah. still harks back for the love he felt as a child. And... As a child, his parents sell him to the bank for $50,000 or <laughs> something like that. Um I, I'm not quite sure. I think that's of its time, you know. The uh, I was going to ask you guys what was going on there. It's very, this, it's very Dickensian. There's something mentioned yeah. about gold, and they basically they've they have a boarding house, and someone gave them some land as kind of payment for boarding. It was just worthless land. They find gold on there. They opens up this gold mine. They're suddenly extremely rich. So they think, right, we've got all this money. Let's get our child the life that we couldn't give him and so he's sent off to go to the best schools and have the best possible education and etc etc 
because when he's 25 he's going to have all this money and uh, and that's that I don't know why that involves never having any emotional attachment to his parents or seeing them why they don't move somewhere there isn't kind of a nice they just stay in a hotel nearby because they've got money to burn so they can do anything they want well I can't come back for Christmas Well, I understood that the dad was abusive. There is that line that the mum has that she's sending him away where you can't get to him kind of thing. I don't think that really works because the dad, sort of the actor plays it as this kind of, you know, bemused, uh, befuddled character. Plus he's the one who's like, you can't take my son away, aren't we supposed to love him? And she's like the cold fish. Mm. And also, what he he says, and what she says, like, that's why he's he's, he's like, oh, he's misbehaving, you ought to give him a clout. Mm. Which, you know, I think by 1881 standards is pretty normal. <laughs> like, I don't think that, like, by 1981 standards, that's pretty normal. <laughs> like, just give him, give him a clout around the ear because he's just punched a banker in the stomach. I did probably read a lot more into that, sort of with a more modern perspective, actually. I think you're right. Yeah. Cause... Well, no, I, I don't know. She, she does, they do specifically have that line where the mum says, this is why we're sending him, him away, so you can't do this to him or whatever it is. She, mm. she does say that. I, I do think that's intentional like you you read it calvin oh, okay uh, as as uh I, I i had a similar thought on the rewatch i did think like oh maybe my view of the 40s and you know everyone's smacking their kids about <laughs> is not entirely uh accurate maybe i've just well, it's not even the that. 40s is it that's 1880s when that scene is set Mm. True, true. Mm. But obviously, <laughs> it's been made with a 1940s sensor. Everyone was hitting their kids in the 1940s. Everyone. <laughs> that was the only element of the story that I didn't really understand. I felt like everything else is like super clear throughout the whole thing, but that was, uh, yeah. I, I at first I thought the guy was like, I thought he was like this sinister, like this guy just turned up and was like, I want a boy, and they were like <laughs> selling him, and then I thought that was really seedy, but. I guess it wasn't that. I mean, I, I I guess in the old days, maybe they're out in the middle of snow, aren't they? They've not got the internet. <laughs> maybe the maybe the phone service is very patchy to to that. Maybe they don't even have a village phone or what have you. Maybe they died wherever they live. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's a scene where at the beginning we see all the journalists in a projection room, and it's all shot in shadow, and in a way that you would never, ever approach shooting a scene. It's so... It's... um, It has a great effect. Uh, But again, just another example of him kind of not following the rules. Well, it's consistent throughout the film as well. This journalist uh, who is investigating all this, he's not really ever a character he but he is sort of like the constant throughout the whole thing you know the contemporary setting which i found really interesting he's in shadow almost all the time uh we never mm-hmm. really sort of are supposed to mm. empathize with him or get to know him or anything like that other than he's just out on this mission and he's just sort of the vessel for us to be mm. told all these stories but i thought that was really effective yeah, and that sh- and the shadowy scene, you know, it, it has a great effect, and it's kind of these faceless journalists and all that sort of thing. But it was mostly because it was all the same actors that are playing characters later on. <laughs> just Orson Welles didn't like bringing in other actors, so oh. it was just like, okay, just Joseph Cotton is one of them. We better hide his face. Hmm. <laughs> that was something that again so this was on the ebert commentary uh that was filmed in the rko screening room and they filmed mm. it under the guise of it being they were testing out the lights because some people were sort of like pointing out well why aren't you lighting the characters faces no you know that's not how you do things and they're like, oh no no it's just a test we're just seeing with what we can do with shadows and stuff and obviously they used it in the final film 
I suppose I get an extra element of enjoyment out of just how much this film informed the early years of The Simpsons. Oh yes. <laughs> I feel like they parry I feel like they parodied it maybe once every three episodes, something like that, and Mr. Burns, certainly in the early days, seems to be heavily, heavily inspired from this film. There is a man. There is a man. A certain man. A man man whose grace and handsome face are known across the land. You know his name. You know his name. It's Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. He loves a smoke. Enjoys a joke. (laughs) To the point that I wonder if if his name perhaps was inspired by Mr. Bernstein. I don't know. No, uh, it was Charles Foster Kane, Charles Montgomery Burns. Mm. Ah, there you go. And the, you know, down to like the when we see the flashback of Mister Burns as a kid and his parents and his his mum looks just like the woman in this film, even though she's clearly a caricature of Mister Burns if he were an old woman, which is <laughs> very jarring and weird. But no, I, I mean, I must say that that does give me a whole extra element of enjoyment in this film. But mm. but no, I, I just think, as I say, I, I think this is a really furiously entertaining film. I, by modern standards, I can just sit down and watch this film like I would, you know, a, a solid, enjoyable, modern film. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, I think it's quite remarkable. So just taken at face value, I would probably give it a 9 out of 10. But when I take into account when it was made and, and where it's come from, and and I'm with Calvin. I I do like that final reveal and the the bit of pathos and poignancy that comes with that ending. I think it works for me. So yeah, I I, I give it a ten out of ten. I I think it's a classic for a reason. Ah. Uh, I'm going to echo a lot of those same sentiments. Uh, just to say as well that we're certainly on this podcast. We're certainly not philistines when it comes to older. Uh, films, and I know that mo- a lot of you know a lot of Soul's favorite films are much older. Certainly predating most of our births i think and i yeah. and i'm the same we're also not like pretentious film snobs at the same time yes you know we if we if we enjoy a movie movie with a robot in it then uh great oh exactly yeah but i i'm saying that by saying us saying that citizen kane feels like it's using a lot more modern techniques and these kinds of things and the storytelling and the mechanics of the filming and all that kind of stuff that's not us saying that it is uh well maybe it is us saying that it's better than a lot of its contemporaries at the time because <laughs> I, I don't i don't really know it's different but it feels more modern and familiar and i think it's should be lauded for that yeah I, I think it's really terrific i haven't seen it in a good few years this is probably the third or fourth time i've seen it uh and i'm always very <laughs> pleasantly surprised every time i come to it it is just mm. so it just holds up so astonishingly well mm. like so much better than anything else that I can think of that I've seen around the time. I was almost convinced I'd be bumping this down to a 9 out of 10 on this rewatch. And mm. I, was, I was very pleasantly surprised to find that it, it held up for me. So I, I agree with you there. Because so many of these films that you come to, and like certainly when we were becoming film students and you get books and they talk about, oh, what's the top 100 films or what, you know, all these lists where filmmakers vote on the favourite film. And it was, for a good mm. time, it was always Citizen Kane. And a lot of the time when you look at films on those lists, we've covered some on this podcast, The Godfathers, for instance, I think we all sort of came to yes. with a bit of a shrug and like, eh, not, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, this, I think, he really is deserving of a lot of those accolades. Uh, it's not my personal favourite mm. film ever, but 
I, I'm always hugely entertained by it. I admire it a great deal. So it's a very deserving 10 out of 10 from me as well. <laughs> uh, well, I sort of echo what you're saying, really. I think on a cinematic level, it, it is a brilliant film. I, I think it is. But I think I think Kane's a bastard, <laughs> so 5 out of 10. I think it is out of the ordinary of its time, and that's why it stands out. That's why it's interesting. I previously had this as a 10 out of 10. Uh, but like I said, I haven't watched it for about 10 years. And when I watched it this time, I, I did, I failed to engage with it on an emotional level. I think that is kind of what it comes down to. And it just stopped me from enjoying it. It stopped me from getting into it somehow. I don't know if I can give a much better explanation than that, really. I'm not sure if I can even justify it that well. But I don't want to be too kind of harsh on that level. I'm going to stick with a nine. Ooh, wow. Mm. And I was very tempted to go lower than that, but I, I you know, and, and talking about it here and really appreciating just, just what it was and what it did at the time as well. And, and I, I've been reading a little bit about it and the, the history of um, William Randolph Hearst and stuff like that. I, I find all that stuff very interesting as well, putting it into that kind of context. So I, I like that I can have that extra element of a film after I've watched it. So I'm going to go with nine. I'm happy that it's not a perfect 10 overall for the show, though. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of happy with that. Hmm. Well, that does make it our, our highest rated film of all time, mm. joint first place with Alien. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. Who gave Alien a 9? Me. Oh, okay. Philistine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I gave Citizen Kane a 10, mate. You can't call me a... <laughs> <laughs> a little question for you. What enigmatic word will you say on your deathbed? Ooh. Ooh. Oh, that's good. Hmm. I think I'm just going to go, fuck! <laughs> that's not enigmatic. No journalist is going to go around. <laughs> what does fuck mean in an in interviewing <laughs> people? Someone, journalist going to come knocking at mine and Alan's doors. And being like, uh, what does this word mean? All right. Um, Shazbot. <laughs> Shazbot. <laughs> what does that mean? Shazbot, it's um, <laughs> it's Mork's catchphrase, is it? From uh, Mork and Mindy? <laughs> I don't know, something he says. It's just a weird Robin Williams tick. I don't know what mine would be. It'd probably end up being something that... I, mean, I probably wouldn't be able to say anything without someone just shrugging and being like, it's probably just a James Bond thing. <laughs> Scaramanga. <laughs> mine, mine's going to be Calvin. <laughs> Who was this mysterious Calvin? <laughs> As I'm being thrown into a furnace. <laughs> but Calvin, which which bit of James Bond memorabilia are you going to clutch close and then <laughs> drop on the floor, smashing as you say your last words? Well, I do like my uh, golden gun, but the Lego would be more effective. The Lego Aston Martin yeah, is that smash apart. Shatter, really. Have you guys seen the trailer for Mank? Nope. The film that we are tying this in with. It, it looks very... I mean, I, I, I've got a lot of time for David Fincher. I think he's a great director. I, I was excited on a conscious level for his new film, regardless of what it may be. But on a kind of visceral, emotional level, I, I wasn't that excited. I was just like, oh, you know, I'll check it out when it turns up. But then I watched the trailer and it, he's gone for a real, you know, evoking the era, black and white, the style used in Citizen Kane, really. And you know, you you imagine David Fincher directing that. It, it looks really visually quite remarkable and, and 
interesting and the cast's quite hmm. impressive. So I, I, I'm really excited for that. Is that Gary Oldman? Yes, it is. Yes, Gary Oldman. I'm just watching the trailer now. I don't know anything about this film, frankly. You know, I don't keep up to date. In all the behind the scenes stuff that I was reading as well, like there, there was hardly anything about the writer, like Mankiewicz. Like I think he co-wrote it with Orson Welles, but it was like so much of what you know I heard and was reading about. He had to fight for his credit. Oh, did he? Yeah, because Orson Welles essentially wrote the final thing. Mankiewicz, uh, you know, put a script together and, and sent that in, and he used bits mm. of it. But the in his original contract, so I was just reading about this earlier. In his original contract, he was credited as he was brought on as a script doctor, and it was understood he would not get a credit. I think it was in the contract he would not get a credit. But mm. then, you know, in the build up to the film, he started kicking up a fuss and. Uh, they eventually just sort of gave him a credit. Yeah. He did do work on the script, you know. It's not like uh, unfair credit. Orson Welles is in the film, as portrayed by Tom Burke, who is relatively unknown to the point that I imagine he does an extravagant Orson Welles impression, and that's why he got the job. <laughs> I would have got um, uh, Maurice LaMarche. <laughs> really? You, you wouldn't have gone for Vincent D'Onofro? Yeah, but with Maurice LaMarche's voice on the top, yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs> The problem with Maurice LaMarche is, as much as I love his Orson Welles impression, it is also <laughs> the voice of the brain from Pinky and the Brain. And... Well, that's because that's an Orson Welles impression. I know, I know, but it means that whenever he voices Orson Welles and stuff, like Ed Wood, which is what we're referencing, guys, uh, there's a scene where um, Ed Wood meets Orson Welles in the film Ed Wood, but Vincent D'Onofro, who looked the part, didn't sound the part, so they dubbed him with Maurice LaMarche, and he just sounds like the brain from Pinky and the Brain. It's the same voice. <laughs> yes, it's exactly the same voice. Calvin, have you seen that film where um, Zac Efron meets Orson Welles? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Calvin made me watch this in the cinema with him. See, I've seen that film because it's a Richard Linklater film, isn't it? Yes. Really? And I'm a yes. big fan of him, although he does occasionally churn out stuff that he doesn't seem to put as much care into. <laughs> like me and Orson Welles. Like me and Orson Welles, yes. Who's who's Orson Welles in that one? It was Christian McKay, and I remember it specifically because I kept going on to Saul about how he was going to be nominated for an Oscar for his performance, <laughs> and then he didn't. That, mm. But he was pretty good! I mean, to be fair, he was very good in that film. I can't remember why you were so like adamantly against it. Like, I know why you were adamantly against yeah, coming to see it? like Halloween Two with me, Rob Zombie's Halloween Two, and uh, <laughs> the Friday the Thirteenth remake, which I believe I paid for you to see with me. Yeah, by which you mean you bought my ticket rather than yes. you like gave me a fee to accompany <laughs> you to the cinema. <laughs> that would have made you an escort. <laughs> I don't think I was that I, I think I just couldn't be bothered going to see a 6 out of 10 film in the cinema I think that's really what it came down to I just mm. so that is well it's Citizen Kane and it's Orson Welles we can tick him off now done <laughs> like we've done Scorsese they only get one we'll cover every James Bond film <laughs> at least once but Orson Welles gets one film and that's it I don't know. Maybe we'll do Touch of Evil one day. Mm. You don't think we'll get a lot of mileage out of talking about Charlton Heston playing a Mexican, Alan? I think that seems. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's multiple cuts of that film as well, which I I've got the I've got the Blu-ray, so I could use an excuse to <laughs> finally watch all the different versions. Calvin. Yes. It says here that Orson Welles was in Casino Royale. Yes, the 1960s that. version. 
Oh. He probably plays one of the Bonds. Uh, well, he's the he villain, actually. Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre. Yes. yes does he do a French accent? Uh, no, he doesn't, but he does. Oh. <laughs> he does do his own magic tricks, which... Oh, well, he, he was good at magic, wasn't he? Did yes! He used to have a career as a magician. He was very good. So to, to, to fill the days when Peter Sellers was storming off because he was annoyed that Orson Welles was uh, getting more screen time than him, they would uh, just fill the day by filming Orson Welles doing his magic tricks. So you just have all of these strange sequences. You're really going to love that film, Sol. I can just see it coming. Like Everyone else hates <laughs> it, but you're going to be like, it's the best Bond film ever. Oh, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I can totally believe it's the best Bond film ever. That's, it's going to be good. <laughs> That's it. Thank you for joining us, Calvin. Thank you for coming from your morning bed uh, to uh, mm-hmm. to join us tonight. You know, as you're wearing all black. There's a little tear in your eye still, but uh, you you made mm-hmm. it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. It's been tough. Uh, what's next week, Sol? Oh, uh, next week. Oh, French. <laughs> <laughs> the summer wine. I can't do it. It's not happening today. <laughs> the French. Champagne. champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. He's kind of down here, isn't he? And then he, in those later days, because he, he's a very hard one because he's got that kind of American aristocracy kind of thing going on. And then Vincent when you try and do it, you turn into Vincent Price, <laughs> which is what Maurice Lamarche uh, allegedly <laughs> did for his brain voice. It was allegedly a combination of Vincent Price and Orson Welles. And possibly someone else, but it's actually just his Orson Welles impression. <laughs> yeah, it does appear to be that, yeah. All right. Can you emphasize a bit in, in July? Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence within and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll make cheese for you. That's just idiotic if you'll forgive my saying so. That's just stupid. In July. Impossible. Meaningless. I was just thinking that... You aren't thinking. Brain, it was my fault. I said in July. If you could leave every July. You didn't say it. He said it. You're a friend. Too much directing around here. <laughs>